Amen. Why don't you take your seats, guys, if you could make your way out. Thanks. Can I just say, if uh, those of you that haven't heard that song before are a little freaked out by the words, um, I introduced that song a couple of weeks ago at the start of this series and explained the background to the song. I explained how I felt about the words when I first heard them, um, uh, which wasn't great. And what God has done in my life through that song, really, or beginning to do in my life through that song. So if you weren't here, I've started to blog. You can follow my blog, and there's a link on that a couple of weeks ago. But if you don't do that whole blogging thing, uh, get the CD or get the download from two weeks ago, and you'll, you'll hear about that song, okay? And if you ever go on YouTube, look how he loves us, the story. And there's a five-minute uh, video on there that tells you what happened to the guy who wrote the song and how the song came into being, okay? It gives a lot of context uh, to the song, especially if you're struggling with a sloppy wet kiss, all right? Which I'm not saying you are, but some of you may be. Um, okay, so we're looking at the art of living beautifully. Uh, I want you to come with me. Three weeks ago, um, I'm in a, in, a, in a flat in the middle of a city called Plovdiv, which is in Bulgaria, and I'm sat in a, in a flat, uh, in, in a room, eating pizza with a pastor and his wife. I'd not met them before. I was speaking at his church on, on the next day. And we were talking about life in Bulgaria for young people especially. He has two kids who are in their 20s who I know quite well. But I'd never met the parents, the pastor and his wife before. And we're talking about the dilemma. Okay, and this is what I've called the first section, the dilemma. And the dilemma is this, that under communism, okay, Bulgaria was an oppressive society, but they never had uh, alcohol, or a lot, uh, uh, publicly. I mean, obviously it was underground. They never knew anything about pornography or drugs, consumerism, materialism. None of that existed. So then when freedom came in 1990, of course, with freedom, which is great, came all these other things. And the dilemma we were talking about is, is he was noticing, they're noticing that a lot of their young people in Bulgaria who at one stage were passionate for God and didn't have all these other distractions now were wanting to be passionate for God but suddenly were surrounded by all this other stuff. Does it make sense? And they've seen in their lifetime, in this last 10 years, you see 10 years ago there was hardly any divorce in the Bulgarian church. Nobody was getting divorced. Now it's happening all the time. And what they're doing is they're looking and they're saying, how do we do this? How do we encourage our young people growing up in this open culture to love God with all their heart, their soul, their strength, and to be obedient to God and to follow God and to live beautiful lives? How do we do it? And of course, when you have a conversation like that, immediately one of the responses is, well, we just need to be stronger with our young people. We need to tell them the rules. If we just tell them the rules and they'd obey all the rules, then everything would be great, wouldn't it? wouldn't it? I don't know about you, but have you ever had anyone say to you, see, Christianity seems all right, but it's just a whole load of rules and regulations. Anyone ever heard that? And of course, we say, no, it's not. It's a relationship. But actually, it has got a whole load of rules and regulations. And interestingly enough, some of the rules and regulations that we have are absolutely crackers. They're not the rules that God put in. They're things that we've placed on top of it. They're laws that we put, they're rules that we put, which aren't rules that God has put, but we've done it. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not just the church that's got crazy rules and laws. Have you ever read your office handbook? All right? There will be things in your office handbook which I tell you, once upon a time made a lot of sense and now make no sense at all, but they're still there. 
And interestingly enough, I thought, I wonder if in real law that's the case as well. So I did a bit of research, okay, Google, there you go. And uh, here's some of the world's strangest laws. Once upon a time, these laws made sense to somebody, but they are still in law, and I want to suggest they make no sense at all. So apparently it is illegal for a cab in the city of London to carry rabid dogs or corpses. I mean, why you'd ever want to do that, I've got no clue, but that is law. It's illegal to die in the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> that is a law. It is illegal to die in the Houses of I'm sorry, sir, you've just died. That's a He's dead. <laughs> Crazy. In France, it is forbidden to call a pig Napoleon. See, that, that used to make sense in the 1700s. It doesn't make a lot of sense now. <laughs> in Alabama, it is illegal for a driver to be blindfolded while driving a vehicle. Oh, go on, officer, just let me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know that. In Ohio, it is against state law to get a fish drunk. I mean, who, somebody must at some stage took a fish out and got them absolutely wasted. I mean, why is there a law to say you cannot get a fish drunk? In the UK, this is a bit for those of you that are squeamish a little bit here. In the UK, this is true apparently, a pregnant woman can legally relieve relieve herself anywhere she wants, even if she so requests in a policeman's helmet. (laughs) Sorry, officer. (laughs) I just just saw that there was the law at the back. (laughs) Sorry, not the law. (laughs) And And this one did make sense 500 years ago, but it's still law. Apparently, nobody's taken it out of the law. In England, all men over the age of 14 must carry out two hours of longbow practice every day. Now, of course, that made sense in the 1500s. It don't make a lot of sense now. And, and I want to suggest to you this morning that once upon a time, a rule made sense, and it was there for a good reason, but what happens over time is that we forget about that and we still hold on to the rule of the law. And you see, the development of a healthy Beautiful spirituality is not primarily about rules or laws, but it's about vision. It's about vision. And much of what I want to say this morning is taken from this book by Steve Chalk, which I've been recommending to you. Please go and buy it, get a copy, read it over Christmas, called The Art of Living Beautifully. Um, the last couple of weeks, it's, I've more been kind of inspired by this book, but I'm going to take some teaching out of this book. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'd really encourage you, if you do have a Bible, to bring one with you. Next year, we will be providing some for you, okay? For those of you that forget it, but right now, I really encourage you to do that. And in Matthew chapter 5, this is the famous bit that we call the Sermon on the Mount. starts with these Beatitudes. It's Jesus teaching all of these people in the first century Palestine his kind of manifesto, what the kingdom of God is all about. You can read this or you can hear this as a whole new set of rules and regulations, because he starts talking about, blessed are you when you're this and you're that and you're the other. Then he talks about being the salt of the earth and the, and the light of the world. He talks about murder and divorce and adultery. You can read it all like it's just another whole set of rules and regulations. But it's not. It's the vision of a new way to live your life. It's calling you to live a life that is beautiful by a whole different way than just by basing it on rules and by laws. And you, the people that were hearing it were staggering under the weight of all their rules and regulations. You see, the Pharisees, we're going to talk about them, with a group of Jewish leaders, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. They'd got this whole set of rules, and it was building rule upon rule upon rule, and law upon law upon law, and everyone was 
dying under the weight of all of this pressure. But you see, when Jesus sits the people down and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's looking at someone. Do you know that? He's saying, blessed are you, poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. In other words, God is with you when you mourn. You don't have to do anything. God is with you in your mourning. God is with you when you're, when you're persecuted. God is with you when you're trying to bring people together. God is with you. You are blessed. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, you must be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And you see, the, the great thing is, it's great if you believe in God. But I tell you what, it's even greater when you know that God believes in you. And God looks at this ragtag bunch of people who are under the weight of the law and under the weight of Roman oppression. And he said, listen, I believe in you. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're going to live beautiful lives. It was a liberating thing, not an oppressing thing. They were already oppressed enough. Jesus came to liberate us, didn't he? He came to set us free from the law of sin and death and to set us free to live beautiful lives. But the problem is, in verse 17, he then says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. And they must have thought, oh, it was sounding great up to there. And then you came in with this one, do you know what I mean? I haven't come, you're saying that you haven't come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So how do we understand this? On the one hand, he's saying you're not under the law and it's not all about rules and I believe in you and I'm calling you to vision. But then I'm saying, but I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. How does this all work out? You know, the Pharisees get a bad press, don't they? But I want you to realise the Pharisees began with really good and pure motives. They wanted to live beautiful lives that please God. The problem was they went about it the wrong way. The vision of living a beautiful life was drowned out by all of these rules and laws and regulations. Their fear was that if we give up on the rules, we give up on discipleship. But you see, discipleship is not primarily about keeping rules, but it's about developing habits and practices that cause you to become more like God. That's primarily what discipleship is about. It's a little bit like a kid who wants to be a great footballer. You know, he he wants to be a great footballer because he has a vision of what a great footballer is like. So he watches Messi and the ball sticks to his feet and he weaves in and out of people and pings it in the top corner. And he looks at Ronaldo, who can curve a ball into the top corner. And he looks at Wayne Rooney. Anyway, he looks at all these these amazing footballers. And, And that vision of being like that is what inspires him to go and practice every day. To be like that, isn't it? He's not inspired by the rules. He's inspired by the vision of what it looks like to be a great footballer. How many of us are inspired when we look at Jesus and say, I want to be like that. And I'll do whatever I can to become like that. Because it's the vision that inspires us. You see, for me, this issue is another big question that I'm wrestling with in my life. Two weeks ago, I said the question that I'm wrestling with all of these at the same time. Does my story make sense in this book? Is my faith hot or is it lukewarm? Last week, will I ever be the me that I want to be or the all that God meant me to be rather? Will I ever be that person that God meant me to be? And today my question is, how do we become like Christ without it descending to just keeping the rules? Or if I can rephrase it another way, does Jesus play jazz? 
That seems totally weird to you, but I want you to come with me. Uh, when I was six or seven, um, I started to play the piano. I had piano lessons. I had a teacher. I remember this little old guy. Uh, I mean, really old. Uh, he's probably like 40, like my age. But when you're six, the 40 is old, isn't it? And, and this old guy used to come in to teach me. And between the age of six and about 10 or 11, I hated it. Because I hated, the most thing I hated the most was scales. Anyone ever had music lessons or any description? Scales are demonic, aren't they? I mean, they just are horrendous. And you had to do these scales and scales. And between the age of six and about 11, piano playing for me was not fun. It was just drudgery and I had to do it and, and I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and my parents lovingly encouraged me, battered me. No, 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 they didn't. They didn't. Just encouraged me to keep doing it. And I'm really grateful that they did. But you know what? When I became 12, 13, all of a sudden music changed for me. Because I understood the rules. I understood the principles. I understood the chord structures. And all of a sudden I realized that I could start to make music of my own. I could start to put the notes down and I could start to improvise. And then when I was about 16, 17, uh, with a bunch of mates, some of who are in the room today, we kind of set up a band and, and you know, we started doing the whole rock band thing and we were going to be a great rock band and we had everything apart from talent. If, it, it was just that one little thing that we, that we, that we lacked, which was talent. But we were going to, and all of a sudden music, you see most of the other guys I was playing with didn't read music at all. But we could make music because we understood the chords and the structures. And then in my 20s, when I started getting involved in national uh, events, I met people who could really play. I met some jazz musicians. And something about a jazz musician is this. A jazz musician is not bound by the rules. A jazz musician is released. Is released because a jazz musician understands that music is basically about roots, chords and structures. And if they understand that, then they are free to create, to improvise and to make music beauty. I'm going to try and illustrate it for you this morning. Maybe you know that I play the piano badly, but I'm going to make my world debut on the guitar this morning. The guitar is an American version of that. Now I'm in trouble here because this has come out. Now we're all right. We're all right. I can manage that. Now, uh, you got a plectrum. Lee's feeling under pressure now. He's feeling that his job might, might be good. Now, I understand enough about the guitar, okay, I think, anyway, to be able to do some stuff with you this morning, okay? Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Now, that's, that's all right. Well, it's not really all right, but do you know what I mean? That, that's music. That, that's it. That's the chords. But watch this guy. He can really play the music. Wow. See, like, to me, like, as a musician, that either makes you inspired or makes you want to give up. Do you know what I mean? When you see somebody who's that good. But you see, that's, that's the point, really, that actually music, jazz music like that, is not being confined by the rules, but being freed by the principles. And what I want to do this morning is to look at the jazz master, as in Jesus, and I want to show you, through some interactions with people, just how he calls us into a vision of living a beautiful life. And it's not by obeying the rules, because he goes much deeper than that. See, it's easy to obey the rules sometimes. It's very hard to understand and live out of the principles. That's the life of faith that we're talking about, isn't it? So if you've got a Bible, we're going to kind of look at this together. We're going to look first at the book of John chapter 8. And just while you're turning to John chapter 8, anyone remember those braces that used to be out a few years ago called WWJD? Does anyone remember those? Yeah? What would Jesus do? And of course, I understand the sentiment of that, and that's great. Like, what would Jesus do? The problem is, 
that the answer to that is always about, okay, here's a list of things that Jesus would do. But it's not as easy as that. See, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Let me, let me ask you a few questions, again, out of this book. I lost the page now. Would Jesus be for or against stem cell research? Would Jesus be for or against birth control? Would Jesus serve as a chaplain to the armed forces? Would Jesus negotiate with terrorists? Would Jesus speak at the local Ast mosque if he was invited? Would Jesus join a multi-faith discussion group? Would Jesus join a trade union or would he strike for more pay? Would Jesus drive a car and if so, which one? Would Jesus drink beer, stick with red wine or reevaluate and go teetotal? Would Jesus buy a home, rent or live in a commune? Would Jesus get private health insurance or only stick with the NHS? Would Jesus vote? Who for? Why? Would Jesus take holidays abroad? Would he go by plane? Would Jesus offset his carbon footprint? Would Jesus turn off his phone in a prayer meeting? (laughs) Would Jesus take a view on homosexuality? Would Jesus complain about media misrepresentation? Would Jesus turn the other cheek if he was mugged on the street? Would Jesus train as a clergyman? And if so, which denomination? You see, what the book talks about, which is brilliant, is that you cannot just put it all into a narrow, black and white, simplistic thing that, listen, there's a whole set of rules. You can't do that. You see, nowhere in here does it give you the answer to some of those questions, but it gives you principles. It gives you roots and cords and structures, and you can move off that. But it is not as simplistic as saying, what would Jesus do? Give me the answer. It's not like that. And what I want to show you from these interactions is how Jesus comes in. The Pharisees operate at the level of the law, black and white, right and wrong. Jesus comes in at a whole different level. And I want to tell you, that's the level where you live beautifully. So John chapter 8, horrific story of where where it says that that, that they they got this woman. And it says in verse 4, they drag her to Jesus. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, how graphic is that? She was caught in the act of adultery and they drag her before Jesus and they say, under the law of Moses, she should be stoned to death. What would you do? Now Jesus knows that they're trying to catch him out, okay? And Jesus is incredibly smart. And can I just say before I move into this, politically at the time, it was against the law for Jews to kill people under their own system. Under the Roman system that they were were in occupation for, it was against the law. See, again, a bit selective sometimes when we come to the law. The challenge to Jesus was, does he keep the rules and say, yes, okay, you're right, stoner, or does he break the rules? Either way, there's a a situation, but he's so smart, because what he does, and you know the story, many of you, he writes in the dust. A lot of people, we don't know from the Bible what he writes in the dust, and people have had sermons and even written books about that. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. He writes in the dust for a a, a whole other reason than than what he writes. That's not important. See, this was the day after the festival of shelters, which means that this day still sat under the laws of the Sabbath. And under the law of the Sabbath, in Mosaic law and under the Pharisaical law, you could not work on the Sabbath. And writing was deemed to be working. But writing was defined as leaving a permanent mark. That's writing. So Jesus is writing on the sand and the dust which he's not leaving a permanent mark because he's saying to these guys, listen, fellas, I know all the laws. I know all the laws. But what's at stake here is something much deeper than the laws. You see, all you see, boys, 
is the laws that you say are broken, whereas I see a woman. I see not a broken law, but I see a broken woman. You see? So you see, you're looking on the surface, but I see something much deeper. You're looking at the law, I'm looking at mercy and grace and compassion. And I'm looking at a whole different situation. And I love that about God, don't you? And here's the interesting thing. That, and so then he, he, he sends them and says, listen, okay, if any of you are without sin, in other words, if you've never messed up, then please be my guest and throw a stone. And that crowd have enough about them to know that, yeah, okay. And they drop the stones and they go. And then there's just Jesus and the woman left. And it's beautiful right at the end. Because Jesus doesn't just say, see, it's not about the laws. You go, you go back to your act of adultery. He doesn't say that. He says, no, now and leave your life of sin. See that? See, what he says is that you're not living a beautiful life, but I don't condemn you, but I call you to live a better life. Isn't that beautiful? See, living beautifully is not about banging someone about the rules. It's about saying, do you know what? You can live a different life. You can be better than that. You don't have to give yourself over to all those different men just because you're trying to satisfy the need and the ache and the desire that's deep in your soul. You don't have to do that. You're better than that. Leave your life of sin. Live beautifully. Luke chapter 7, another woman, Luke chapter 7 verse 36, says here that the Pharisees, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, he, the interesting thing is that Simon, the Pharisee, has a name. The woman's name is Sinner. You notice that? He's Simon and the Sinner. See, she doesn't even have a name. She has a label. And yet when Jesus interacts with these people, the one he turns to, listen in verse 44, he turned towards the woman. I love that. He turned towards the woman who didn't even have a name. She just had a label. He turned towards her, but he spoke to Simon the Pharisee. And he said, listen boy, you keep all the rules, but I came into your house, there was no love, there was no mercy, there was no grace, there was no forgiveness. This woman who doesn't even have a name, but only has a label, she came in and she gave me all of that. What are you doing? And it's like in an instant, he cuts through all the rubbish of the rules and he gets to the heart of who Simon is as a Pharisee. You see, I think what he's saying here is is saying something similar to all of us. See, you may never be violent, but your heart can be full of violence and hatred. You may never commit the act of adultery, but in your heart, you're unfaithful and full of lust. You may give your money away, but you're not generous. And so what Jesus says, and because the art of beautiful living is not about how you keep the rules, it's about what's going on on the inside, isn't it? And then amazingly, in, in Matthew 23, and, and if you're in life group this week, I really encourage you uh, to look at this passage of scripture together and ask God what he's saying to you about it. Matthew 23, verse 23 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give your stuff away, but you've neglected the more important things like justice, mercy and faithfulness. He's not saying don't give. He's saying, but as you give, make sure that it's not just about giving, it's about who you are. It's about mercy and justice and faithfulness. He goes on to say, you clean the outside of the cup, but you don't bother about the inside. 
You whitewash the outside of the tombs, but you don't care about the inside. And beautiful living is not about what we're on the outside first. It's about what's going on on the inside, isn't it? And so he says to Simon and to this woman, listen, Simon, where's your grace? Where's your mercy? Where's your compassion? If you get those things right, you can create great and beautiful music. But if you're only bothered about the rules, you'll never understand why I really came and what I'm really about. And before you think it's just women, in Luke chapter 19, there's a man, and his name is Zacchaeus. How many of you have heard of Zacchaeus? Yeah, many of you heard of him. He's a short guy, a financial guy. He was a Jew, and um, he was working for the Romans, taking taxes off the Jews, and taking more than he should have done. So he wasn't very popular. And if there was a time of economic recession, they wouldn't have wanted to hear Zacchaeus say, we're all in this together. All right, not that I'm comparing David Cameron with Zacchaeus, you understand that. But he was very like ostracized and hated because of who he was. And you know, the, the story says in Luke chapter 19 that when Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is in town, he goes and he climbs up a tree to look for him. And when Jesus sees him, the Bible says he comes to the tree. Fantastic. He comes to the tree and he looks up at him and he doesn't say, you've broken the rules. He says, I'm coming to your house for tea. That's amazing, isn't it? He says, you who have broken the rules and who've lied and who've cheated and who've stolen, I believe in you. That's phenomenal. He says, I'm coming to your house for tea. And when he comes down the tree and he interacts with Jesus, then you hear what happens is that Zacchaeus, out of that transformation, doesn't then start just keeping the rules. He goes beyond that. He pays back four times what he should have paid back. Because he's so grateful that God believed in him. He's so grateful that God loved him that he wanted to live a different life. He wanted to live beautifully, not because he had to, but because now he wanted to. Isn't that amazing? Oh God, it's so amazing. And I spent a lot of my Christian life trying to keep the rules and realizing that actually I've got it the wrong way around. Like God, if I was just close enough to you, if I let you love me enough, if I let your life fill me enough, I'd want to do all that stuff, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. And so I'm thinking now about how to finish, because we're going to do something a little different this morning. And, um, and I'm thinking about the response. Section three is called the response. And then, of course, my danger is that I could just give you a whole list of rules to do now, couldn't I? So this is what you need to do in response to this. It's not all about the rules. Here are the rules you need to follow. And I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three, and there are probably a lot more, but I'm going to give you three root chords. You understand? Three root chords. But if you get these root chords in your life, you can improvise spiritually and make some beautiful music in your life with God. Chord number one, you must remember that there are house rules. What do I mean by that? You see, I'm not saying that, hey, forget all the rules. You can do whatever you like. There are house rules. You see, in a, in, in a house where there's house rules, the mom or the dad will relate, and even if you, perhaps you've got other people staying, and you're saying, but these are the house rules, they'll relate to you individually. But there are still house rules, aren't there? So you might say, I'm not the forgiving type. Tough. The house rules are you forgive. You might say, I'm not the abstaining type. Tough. The Bible says the house rules are that sex is meant and designed for within marriage. You might not be the abstaining time type, tough. If you want to follow God, that's the house rule. But you see, even though there are house rules, it's how you hear the house rules that's important. Do you hear them in your ears as oppressive 
Or actually, do you hear them as liberating? You see, one of the most important verses in the New Testament is in John chapter 13, where Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey what I command. Now, you can hear that two ways. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Feels like I'm talking to my kids again. It's <laughs> a flashback moment there. Do you know what I mean? If you love me, you will obey what I command. Or you can hear like this. You know, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It's a totally different thing, isn't it? If you love me, you will obey what I command. Or do you know what? If you loved me, you'd obey what I command. You see, I've sat with loads of people, Christian people, okay? And they're doing stuff that's totally not right. And they know it's not right. It's breaking all the house rules. And they know it. And I can't get through to them. And I say, you know, and if I just, because actually they don't love God. Because if you really love God, you would want to do what God says. Not because you have to, but because you'd want to. And before you think, oh, he's very judgmental, it's true of me as well. There are things in my life which I don't do, which are God's commands, because I don't love God enough. But in those bits when God connects and you, and you love God, suddenly you find yourself doing the things that he commands. Not because you have to, but because you want to. A few years ago, um, we had a fellow come to the church quite a few times called Rob Lacey. Some of you will remember him, uh, an actor. He's, he's died now of cancer. An amazing guy, a friend of mine. And, and he, he did this piece called The Ten Commandments. And I just, I can't do it in anywhere near as uh, give credit to it that he could. But, but he said... He acted out and he said, you can hear the Ten Commandments in two different ways. Listen to this. You won't have any other gods before me. You won't have any idols. You won't misuse the name of the Lord your God. You will keep the Lord's day holy. You will honour your parents. You won't murder. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't lie. You won't covet your neighbour's possessions. You won't. You just won't. Let me say the same words again. You won't have any other gods except me. You won't have any idols. You won't misuse the name of the Lord your God. You will keep the Lord's day holy. You'll honour your parents. You won't murder. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't lie. You won't covet your neighbour's possessions. You won't. You just won't. It's different, isn't it? I wonder how you've heard the commands of God. I wonder how you've heard the house rules whether you've heard them as oppressive and restrictive or whether you've heard them as loving and liberating because that's what they're meant to be. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people and I've thought, guys, your lives are a mess. There's pain and brokenness and it's because you didn't keep the house rules. And those rules weren't there for God to restrict you. They were there for God to liberate you. To set you free, to be the you that God created you to be. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Second root chord to remember is this. Remember that spirituality is an art more than a science. There is no one size fits all approach to spirituality. Religion is when we try to encode spirituality. We try to say this is how you must do it. The spiritual disciplines, okay, are tools for us to use. They're highways, not destinations. How many of you have ever journaled, you know what I'm saying about journaling, writing in a book, so you've journaled, not perhaps every day, but you've journaled and you've found it to be very helpful in your spiritual life. And I'm one of those. Brilliant. Okay, how many of you have tried it 
and you haven't found it helpful. Fantastic. Be free not to do it. If you want, at the end, I will pray over you and I will release you never to use a journal again. It doesn't matter. How many of you have, have, have tried and you found this to be really helpful that when you wake up in the morning, that the first thing that you try to do is to read and to, re- to read the scriptures and to pray. You found that to be helpful. How many of you? How many of you tried that and it ain't working? Be free not to do it. Because it's not important that we all do the same thing. It's not important that we all use the spiritual disciplines as rules and regulations. You see, sometimes, and I know in my own life, I've been pressured into, I haven't journaled today. I must journal. I must journal every day. No matter what, I must do it every day. I must feel... And I'm thinking, is this helping me to become more like Christ? Or am I just actually trying to fulfill the law that I've placed upon it? See, the most important thing is, is not have I journaled, have I prayed, have I done this, is am I becoming more like Christ? Now, if you've never tried any of those spiritual disciplines, I'd encourage you to try them all. Because those are tools to use to help you to become more and more like Christ. But you see, if we measured our devotion to God by our devotional life, Pharisees would be taught, wouldn't they? If we measured it by our devotional life, John Ortberg says the main measure of your devotion to God is not your devotional life, but it's your life. That's a very profound statement. The measure of your devotional life or your spirituality is not your devotional life, it's your life. It's how we live our life is the measure of our devotion. You can keep all the rules and be less generous. You can keep all the rules, but are you more loving? Are you more merciful? Are you more compassionate? Are you less anxious? Are you less irritable? Are you more full of faith? Are you less impatient? Are you more hard? You see, you can keep all the rules and not be living the life. And the third thing that I want to say, and the final thing, the root cause is remember, we can all live beautiful lives. Do you know that? We can all live beautiful lives of faith if we get close enough to God. A photographer was asked this question, if how, how do you know or, or how do you make great pictures with the camera? What's the secret to taking a great photograph? And the photographer said, well, I could give you all kinds of technical responses to that, like shutter speed and light and all this kind of stuff. But you know, the most important thing is get close enough. He says, if there's a problem with the picture, it'll be because you're not close enough. And when I read that, I thought, oh, that is so, what a profound spiritual principle that is. That the problem in our lives in living beautifully is not all the technical stuff, but often it's because we're just not close enough. We don't let God close enough. We don't push into God close enough. We don't allow Him to penetrate our defences and our priorities so that He can get close enough. Because if He can get close enough, like He did with that woman in the dust there, like He did with that woman in the meal, like He did with Zacchaeus up the tree, if we can let God get close enough, I'll tell you what, He will change your life. You will want to obey what He commands. Not because you have to, but because you want to. And all of a sudden, the spiritual disciplines are there. And you say, how can I find a spiritual discipline that will help me to become more like God? Because I want to. Because God's got close enough. And it may be that there are many of us here this morning. You've been Christians a long time. When was the last time you let God get close enough to you? Really touch your heart to really bring change. To create a hunger and a thirst to know God and to know more of God in your life. You can do that. You can do that. Let him get close enough to you. 
to allow God to speak to you this morning, I'm going to ask the band to come back. Um, a few months ago, again, I heard this other song. This morning we talked about the power of music. And jazz is an illustration just to create something with us here this morning. But I heard this song uh, a few months ago, but then I only really heard it when I was in America a few weeks ago. And the band that wrote the song performed it in this concert that I was at. And I haven't been able to, to get the song out of my head. I keep playing it over and over again. And the song talks about, the chorus is very simple. It says, you make beautiful things out of the dust. Then it says, you make beautiful things out of us. It talks about the pain and the dysfunction and the discord that there is in our lives sometimes. But it says, but out of that, not instead of, not in spite of, out of that pain, out of that dysfunction, out of that difficulty, you make all things new. And I want you to listen to the song and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then two-thirds way through the song, two people from the church, and it's, and, and it's a big thing what they've done. They're talking on camera, on, on the screen, about what God has done in their lives. These are real people who had real situations, who met a real God who has changed their life. And out of the dust of their life has made something beautiful. And I'd encourage you not to move unless you really have to in these next five minutes, please. And just listen to it and watch it and let God speak to you because the same God that changed that woman's life, that changed Zacchaeus from a cheat to a generous person, that changed these people is the same God that can change your life and my life. And out of our stuff, out of our dust, He can make something beautiful. close friend of mine became ill um, and passed away at the age of 16 with cancer. I was 14 at the time and didn't understand why God would let that happen. Growing up I came from a family of um, alcoholics and my mum had loads of men who just abused her and used to beat her up um, and that just resulted in me having loads of labels over my life. I had no friends, no confidence. I tried to play catch-up for all the things I'd missed out on whilst going to church. The world of alcohol, women, drugs and martial arts opened up to me. I had my children really young when I was only 16 and just a single parent and just all the challenges that that brings. I did find happiness for a brief moment of time and, and did remarry. But this didn't last long and ended uh, with her cheating on me with my best friend. Um, my partner that I was with at the time, we lived together for 10 years and then he was unfaithful to me and I was there, back in that place. Uh, and my f- own family uh, disowned me. For me, that was personal, that was real. And I, I didn't know what to do with that or, or where to go. I felt there was only one option and that was to end my life. I had a brother, a faithful brother. Brother has prayed for me for 12 years and he'd invited me on many occasions to come to church, but I'd always just said no. But at that moment, I cried out to God. I said, God, if you're real, if what I experienced was real when I was 11, then you need to show me again. Please help me. I've made a mess of my life. And as I'm sitting here, Right at the back of church, I'm just sitting there and I can really feel God's presence. It was just so powerful Um, and it got to the point where I I just cried out, God, if that's you, just tell me. The voice I heard said this, uh, God loves you 
and no matter what you've done in your life, um, he cares for you. Uh, and, and now you've got an opportunity to, to put things right. I just felt God's passion, um, and I just knew that there was just something bigger out there, just something that was just so amazing that I couldn't contextualise. But again, for the first time in my life, I was literally free. God had done that. I got my relationship back right with him. Uh, I, I knew that was the most important thing. My husband, he gave his life to Christ and then I got back from Nigeria because the change was just so amazing um, inside of me and we just had an amazing, amazing life and filled with so many God moments. With my children, they was able to get to know Christ as well and they started coming to church. All things have been made new. Relationships that went wrong in the past have been restored. I'm reconnected to my family. My life is, is full of lots of happy moments and even though there's times that I want to absolutely despair, I just remember that God's just there and he has breathed his life into me and that he's just, he's just making me into this wonderful thing. It's just a fabulous thing, isn't it? Just amazing. I'm just sat there and watching that and thinking, this is what God does, isn't it? And you may not identify your life as as Wendy and Simon did in some of those things and I know that was quite dramatic but you know like when that woman came in to meet Jesus and, and uh, you know she had a past you know and it was, she was labelled we've all got a past haven't we we've all got a past the beauty of what God does is that he takes whatever is our past and he makes it into something beautiful and he is still doing that he's still doing that if we let him and if we'll get close enough if we'll get close enough so I don't know about you, but I, I, all I want to do is just say, I want to call you down from the tree, up from the dust, to live a beautiful life for and with God. Structures and chords, let God lead you. Improvise, make music, let God make great music out of your life. But you have to get close enough and you have to be willing to follow Him. And it may be even today that there are some of you here and you've never done that. You've never really made that commitment or that surrender to, to follow God. You can do it. You can do it. Everything won't change, but lots will. Lots will. And inside, God will start to do something which in time you will look back and you will say, wow, God has done an amazing thing. And can I just say, those of you that right now, you're involved with stuff that you know it's not God's best for you. You know, I ain't going to bash you. I'm just going to say, you can live better than that. You can live a better life than that. That's the life God calls you to live. Who wants to live that life? Why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray. Why don't you sing this with me? Father, Father we just thank you this morning that you are an amazing God you are making something beautiful out of the dust of our lives. God, we want to follow you, Lord. We want to be led by you. God, I pray that even this week, we would feel like a sense of being set free, set free to love you and to obey you, not because we have to, but because we want to and we choose to. So Lord, send us out, I pray, to live beautiful lives for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.